Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you have not already done so, if you have not connected with us on social media, take a moment, find us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow and like our pages. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to use that same username to find us wherever you get your podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, just to name a few of those platforms. And you'll find us, as I said, at that same username, at Radio Islam USA. All right, folks, uh, as many of you know, but I'll go ahead and say it for that first-time listener, Radio Islam is the nation's only and oldest daily English-language radio program produced by Muslims for the mainstream audience. That means for everyone, for Muslims and non-Muslims alike. Uh, and we're on every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, and we're coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and we're coming to you just just a few feet. Well, maybe I'm exaggerating, but really close to the elevated trains uh, in the downtown area. And uh, as always, it's great to be with you. And first want to say Ramadan Mubarak. That's right. To all of you who are observing this blessed month, uh, this is the month in which the Quran was revealed. Uh, and it is a month of, of, of uh, reflection. It's a month of prayer. It's a month of charity. Of course, it is a month of fasting. Uh, but it is so much more than just the denial of food and drink. It really is a way to get in touch with yourself, uh, to get in touch with the creator, to get in touch with those around you. Uh, it really does. If you engage it properly, it really does allow us to become the best version of ourselves. So it is a wonderful month. And I have to say this also because I had a recent conversation um, with a few friends and one of them was talking about his path to Islam. And he mentioned that he had actually observed Ramadan before actually taking the Shahadatain uh, or professing his faith. Uh, and he said that, yeah, he said, I was around Muslims and I was interested in the religion and I was learning. I had not yet made up my mind or it had not yet completely entered my heart to the point where I was ready to make that proclamation uh, to testify uh, in front of witnesses that this is my faith. Uh, but Ramadan was there, and I felt like this would be a great time for me to just to engage and to come to a, a deeper level of understanding. And, of course, that was one of the things that he mentioned that would actually lead him uh, or deepen his understanding or deepen his sensitivity uh, towards that part of the self that we often don't look at, right? We, we don't, we see our bodies, but we don't think about the soul. Uh, we, we see the things that we need to work on physically when we look in the mirror. I need to lose a few pounds. I need to start working out. I need to eat better. I need to buy better clothes. I need to iron my clothes, whatever it is. Uh, but we see the physical things, and those are the things that, that we respond to most often. But Ramadan is a time where we go beyond the physical and we recognize that the essence of us is not the physical being, but it really is. It's the heart. It's the spirit. It's the soul. It's those things that we can't see when we look at ourselves. Well, you know, I know there are some who would argue um, that you can actually see that. And it's true. You can a lot of times you can see the condition of a person's spirit coming out of their face, coming out of their eyes, right? But, but you get my point, right? Just to give a general statement, those are things that we don't often, we don't often think about if we're not pressed to. So Ramadan, it, it is that time where we can, we can really reconnect with ourselves by reconnecting, rededicating ourselves to the Creator. Now, I want to say thank you to all of you who came out this past weekend and joined us for the Sound Vision Dinner uh, at the Doubletree Hotel in Oak Brook. As you all know, 
our keynote speaker was Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And before I even get into some of her remarks, I think it's important to mention uh, a few things. First off, your, your presence, your energy, it was so, um, it was palpable. It was, it was infectious. I mean, you could feel it in the room. And I think it is a convergence of a number of things. First of all, we know those of you who have supported Sound Vision over the years, you support Sound Vision because it actually, it gives something. It's not just an organization that is, that has its hand out that's asking for, but it is an organization that is giving to. Uh, and it has done that for, for the past 31 years with consistency, with a number of different uh, ventures, a number of different uh, efforts that have had real life effects, uh, that have made lives better, that have increased understanding, uh, whether it's the thinking points and talking points, whether it's Adam's World, whether it's this program right here, Radio Islam, uh, where you have experienced a number of different voices and perspectives uh, over the years, different hosts, and I think this is a good time to go ahead and mention that the longest tenured host, one of the founding hosts of Radio Islam, Sister Janan Hashim, was, the, was one of the uh, MCs. And that was wonderful to see. Uh, the other MC was uh, Sister uh, Lena Suleiman, who's also a former Sound Vision uh, employee, uh, I should say team member. So it was great to see both of them at work uh, this past Saturday, bringing the crowd, you know, energy, uh, and just keeping the program moving, and uh, it, it was it was a wonderful evening. But I kind of digress a little bit. Uh, but the point being, uh, the efforts that Sound Vision has has put forward over the years, they have been meaningful efforts. And one of those efforts, it really it builds upon uh, the Burma Task Force. Right. So many of you, I'm sure most of you, and there may be one, I shouldn't say one, there may be some who are not familiar with some of the work. So it's always always important to make sure you're talking to that person in the room. So the Burma Task Force, which dealt directly with the genocide of the Rohingya uh, Muslims, as well as uh, uh, some of the other minorities uh, present in Burma. And through that advocacy, the United States was pushed to give, I believe it was over $400 million towards that effort, towards, um, you know, towards making sure that people understood what was going on and to try to support those who were seeking asylum. So this is a very, an extremely important effort. Uh, and it's one that has also, I guess, laid the groundwork for the current work uh, that's taking place with the Save Uyghur uh, campaign, which would lead me into the Fast from China uh, campaign that's going on this Ramadan. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. But first, I want to preface that by going back to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's remarks uh, and how extremely important to the point and absolutely Timeless, and I'm going to say that these these remarks are timeless, in that it is always the right time to stand up. She mentioned that this is the time. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me say she said this is. Uh, the, she said the time for standing on the sidelines is over. The time for being silent is over. Right. This is the time for Muslims. And I will say by extension, it is a time for people of conscience to stand up, to stand together. And when I say it's a timeless message, it's certainly on time right now because we know about the Islamophobia industry. We know that we have a president right now who has been, uh, who has been attacking the Congresswoman relentlessly, who has, uh, who has fomented this, this, uh, this ignorant and hateful bigotry that has manifested itself uh, and death threats and bodily and threats to, uh, to bodily harm and threats towards our family and, and threats that we probably don't know about and may never hear about. 
but we do know that one of these guys was arrested not too far back. And we probably could expect that, or we shouldn't be surprised, I would say, if we happen to see another arrest in the near future. So I'll just take this moment to go ahead and pray. Uh, we pray for her protection. We pray for uh, her guidance. And we pray that she continues to use her voice to, to, to speak up for those who are not able to speak for themselves. So it is timely. Her message was definitely timely. And it is timeless because it is always the right time. It is always the right time to speak up, to stand up, to stand together for justice, for equality, for equity, for dignity. It is always the right time. So she gave the crowd uh, their marching orders, so to speak. And I, I was really... I was, I was touched, I was moved to hear her say that she was not only honored to be with us, to speak to us, speak with us, uh, but that she was honored that even though she is a representative for a constituency in Minnesota, she is honored that so many of us, that we also feel that she is representing us. And that that is a that is a privilege, and it is uh, it's it's wonderful to see someone who has the platform show appreciation for those that hold her up. Right? It, it's not it's not hero worship at all, but it is certainly an appreciation for the for for being in a space, and for being in that space. Right? Not being in a space and being silent not trying to get along, not trying to uh, be something that you're not, right? And it's not the whole, the whole idea of being a rabble-rouser. That's not the idea. But you have to appreciate authenticity when you see it. So we recognize it, we appreciate it, and we pray for her continued success and well-being. Um, I want to go ahead and mention, I, I, I said the words, but I didn't really get into it. We'll be talking about this all Ramadan long. Inshallah, with God's permission. And that is the Fast from China campaign. Um, this is a vital uh, campaign, it is a vital element in being able to bring together people of conscience, not just Muslims, but people who understand, especially those of us here in the United States of America, those of us who appreciate the freedoms that we enjoy in a democratic society. Uh, being able to practice one's faith, practice one's religion, being able to assemble freely, being able to speak freely, being able to critique the government, right? Because that is necessary. These are things that, that we have, and quite often, quite often, these are things that we don't even think about because we're just so used to having them. Our brothers and sisters in China, the Uyghur Muslims, they are experiencing the exact opposite. There are millions of them right now in concentration camps that are coined re-education centers or re-education camps. And they are really houses for torture. They are really houses for psychological torture, not just physical, but psychological torture. They are doing everything that can be done to remove or push people away from their Muslim identity. So it's important that we as Americans take the opportunity that we have to stand with those who are not able to stand for themselves or to speak for them for themselves. So uh, just going back to the tried and true effort of economic resistance, right, boycotting, that's exactly what we're doing. It worked in Montgomery. It worked in South, uh, uh, South Africa. Uh, it is being implemented with varying results uh, in Israel with the BDS movement. Uh, and we're looking at the same, the same type of, uh, of effort, the same type of engagement with China. They have over a $400 trillion um, uh, revenue, which they receive through our purchasing of their products. So we're saying for the month of Ramadan, for this month, and I know this may sound 
difficult because there's so much of what we buy that has that label of made in China on it, but it is worth it. It is worth the effort and the time to make that statement, to let them see that the bottom line is being affected, to let them see that people of conscience are not, uh, they are not going to sit idly by. As I said, uh, Congresswoman Ilhan gave a timely message, but also a timeless one. And the timelessness of it is that it is always the right time to stand up. It's always the right time to speak up. And, and we're going to be held accountable for what we do with what we know. So let's just keep that in mind. Uh, and as I said, we'll continue to go back over this throughout this month. Uh, and we really want to pray for those whose Ramadan has interrupted uh, their path towards this reflection, this prayer, the congregational aspects, all the beautiful things that we see that we appreciate about Ramadan, all of these things that are being denied our brothers and sisters in other places, uh, particularly as we're talking about our brothers and sisters uh, in China, uh, the Uyghur Muslims. So we'll pick that back up and we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Like I said, we've got a long month ahead of us, but we wanna go ahead and share uh, an episode when we got back. It was a really great conversation we had with uh, Sheikh Yusuf Rios of Shalkani Institute. Uh, I don't think we actually have ever played this on air, but first we'll take a short break. And when we come back, I'm going to say hello and then we'll get right into that. So don't go anywhere. This is Radio Islam. We're on WCEV 1450 AM. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Radio Islam. And this is your host, Tariq Alameen. We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. Uh, we thank you for joining us. And since you have joined us, make sure you stay connected. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Like, follow, all that good stuff. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, just to name a few. And... And that's it, right? Thought there was more. That's it. No, we're actually going to get right into a conversation we had with Sheikh Yusuf Rios um, a little while ago, but we've actually never played this. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Hope you find some inspiration uh, in it. And we pray that your Ramadan is started off well and that it continues to go well and ends well because, uh, as I mentioned in a, in a Facebook post, Let's cherish it because none of us are guaranteed to cross its path again. So let's enjoy it. Let's benefit from it uh, while we have it right now. So please enjoy this conversation with Sheikh Yusuf Rios. It didn't come to fruition, but what did come to be was that I stayed uh, in Michigan when I came back from Egypt, and I worked with them for a short period of time. And they used to have an Arabic program. Arabic uh, studies program, not Arabic language, but uh, catered to the Arabic speakers, an Islamic studies program catered to uh, Arabic speakers and the English branch. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching in the English branch and I had some students and because the numbers were so low, they had decided to discontinue the program. 
And it was not only because the numbers were low, it was also because they were finding that there was not a lot of commitment, long-term commitment, because when you try to launch a university program, mm-hmm. uh, you need a long-term commitment from students. And since, you know, Islamic universities in the U.S. or higher-level institutions are not accredited, and, the you know, the the, the same benefits that you find in the the standard university system are not necessarily there with Islamic uh, universities. They have a difficult time. <clears throat> so when they decided to discontinue, I had students. And so one of the students was actually from Michigan uh, who gave me an extremely hard time with his, his, his uh, thinking. It was a little radicalized at that time in the, in the negative sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and but he he had some sort of driving commitment, and he he asked me, you know, well, what are we going to do? And so, you know, I had that project going on with him. I was trying to aid him, like kind of try to, you know, deconstruct or disentangle his thinking, so that he comes to a more balanced position and he's able to be more functional and and uh and kind of heal himself from whatever it was that he was going through. That's how Shelkani Institute started. So it it went from uh, working with that brother and um, and two young boys who were entrusted to me by the, their father, the Turkish father, living in the Virginia area, who had entrusted his sons to me to educate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of went from there, and then I started to see that there's no way that I was going to focus in the traditional concept of education, I had to be able to be there for those who are struggling, those who they argue with you and two months later they say, I'm sorry, can we continue learning? And those people who have strong work schedules that are so demanding that they really can't be a traditional student. Right. So the Shokani Institute has really catered to that type of um, cultural reality and to people who are not, you know, in the in the norm, so to speak of. Of, of you know seeking knowledge those who, who struggle with it those who, who don't always have the time for it and even those who maybe economically they can't do it let me that's, ask you this that's pretty much how it started let me ask you this Sheikh. uh when it comes to uh, th- this access you know to knowledge to beneficial knowledge you know the and i think you've, you've just outlined this that it is an impediment it's a hardship for some to be able to uh to go and study at you know at um as uh, azhar or to you know go to Medina University or, or any one of these traditional uh, centers of learning. Um, do you think that uh, with teachers like yourself, uh, institutions that we have here, you know, in the states, you know, Zaytuna, American Islamic College, um, uh, do you see that this this idea or this mission of bringing that information back and making yourself accessible that that needs to be or should be at, uh, that that should be a uh, a part of the, not just the impetus, but a part of the mission of those who are able to do so, they're able to go and come back. Uh, do you think that is always present with those who go? And uh, if not, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, not everybody who goes is going to come back and come into the community and try to stay committed for a number of different reasons. One, is the economic behind it is very trying. Um, the other issue is that, what I mean by that is that, you know, basically there's not, you know, a lot of income that comes along with this. Right. And then the second thing is that a lot of times when people do come back with their enthusiasm and maybe they don't have the structural idea, the institutional idea, they want to come back and at least work in the massage, they don't find what they they thought they would find, so they end up veering away. They don't really stay in the massage. Although I feel everyone is obligated to at least be able to uh, teach themselves and their families at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, we would like that they will come back into the community. Like Islamic American University probably was the only university that was really uh, raising, you know, they were in some cases giving 100000 for a student. You know, mm-hmm. so they were really committed money-wise and you have some people like people like Jamal Diwan uh, came out of that project who's in California. You know, you also had uh, Yahya Eder who's an imam in North Carolina. Uh, even 
to some extent for a short period of time, Imam Suhaib Webb was part of the process. Uh, and there was a number of others. There's um, uh, a sheikh, he's an African-American, his name is Sheikh Tariq Abdurashid, who resides in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has an IT background. He went and studied in Jordan, and, and it was it was a hefty tag. It was it was about six figures, and he he's uh he's actually himself and uh, myself and another brother. We also have an institute in Cleveland. It's called the Malcolm um, Shabazz Institute mm. for for um specific for Black and and Islamic studies, and uh it's not really launched because he's been wanting to really uh, focus on it, but. He came back and he kind of slid back, but I feel as though we should come back with the idea of trying to work in the community, but we will need some fine-tuning to understand how to fit in, right? Because we can't always come in and, and think that we're going to take the lead, so to speak. Right. We have to, uh, and that's what has happened with a lot of students that have gone. They have come back and have not understood how to close the gap, the generation cultural gap even though i don't think it's 100 percent real it's there between mm-hmm. ourselves and the elders in our community and what has happened with those who have studied is they come back and either they feel displaced or marginalized or sometimes they become destructive in that they want to correct everything and they don't learn how to have a sense of continuity of, of struggle and so a lot of the especially in the indigenous community i'm referring to so then you find that they, you know, they don't have the ability to really, uh, you know, solidify relationships with the elders, and the older imams, and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And I understand it's difficult, but it has to still be done. Right. The other part would be to create your own institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think that people, so you may find a little more interest with that, to create your own institution and kind of learn how to freelance with the community so that you have some... Uh, some stability and some uh, sanity. Right. Yeah, there definitely is. Um, I think that there is an expectation um, of people, uh, particularly those who who go to study, uh, whether it it, it is uh, private uh, study or whether it is where they go overseas to study, um, uh, that they will come back and do something. But I think the point that you raise is one that doesn't really get enough uh, it doesn't get enough uh, consideration, and that is the economic, uh, the economic impact. Uh, the fact that you know people still have to put food on the table, uh, and if you're looking to impose that that duty on somebody, then it should be something. It should be something that's considered. Um, but when it comes to the, you know, to the urban centers, and drawing from the history of America, where uh, I would say our most influential social reformer, uh, speaking of um, uh, Elijah Muhammad, uh, and the Nation of Islam, the transformative effect that that organization had uh, on oppressed communities. And this is all without traditional understandings. Um, How do you evaluate these same communities who now have who now seems to, in some cases, are unaffected today, uh, even though we do have, we have clear religious understandings, we have, um, we have people who have, you know, who have studied, uh, but more importantly, uh, there appears to be less of an investment in really transforming those communities. Do you think, does this also go back to, once again, uh, an econ- economic consideration, or is it, uh, do you think that there is just simply that is attributed to something else? There's a number of issues that play themselves out uh, till today that have their roots in the past. And when we start talking about structural injustice and we start talking about, uh, you know, the structural injustice is not really understood very well by a lot of Muslims. Like we, we, we kind of know that there's the idea of racism and this and that, but how it plays out legally and culturally and psychologically and economically and politically, you know, it, people really don't understand that. And so you have to have a message, and the, I think the Nation of Islam at least understood that point. You have to have a message that's directed toward empowering the people on, on those levels, at least at the emotional 
economic, you know, and uh, and, and spiritual level, mm-hmm. so that they can function in the other realms. And uh, and to be honest with you, I don't think that Muslims in particular uh, have been very effective at that and uh, at that at that generating the application of Islam in such a way that is transformative, mm-hmm. right? And so, in our urban centers, we're finding difficulty. You know, case in point, like Philadelphia. Philadelphia, we have a veneer of Islam. We have a lot of good success stories, but it hasn't it hasn't formulated itself into the practice of Islam hasn't formulated itself to a point where you can see that Islam is actually transforming the environment, taking them from environments that are are genocidal, homicidal, and 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 so on and so forth into environments that are whole. Mm-hmm. You know, so the message is there people are coming in but the transformative side is lost uh as far as you know as far, that's as far as the environment is concerned as far as the message is concerned but to be honest with you i think also you know there, there's a lot of issues with the history overall again the continuity the continuity piece not many people have figured out how to continue to grow and still have continuity, maybe with the exception of the War of Dean community, but then there's also the generation gap. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of the communities, a lot of the youth broke away from the elders. Yeah. Or or the youth were never brought in. And that has its own history. But I personally think, you know, and this this can we can go on for for hours, hours and, and maybe months on this type of topic. Mm-hmm. But I think that we're failing to really uh learn from the experience of the nation of Islam, those of us especially who either came through that channel or we had some affinity or or some sympathy with what was trying to, what was the effort, what was the movement about. Right. We, we are failing to like learn from the experience and, and try to see how that applies in today's time. Mm. Right. And, and, uh, but we're being forced into the same conditions, by the way, you know, we, we're starting to see similar conditions in today's time. I give you case in point in one of the communities in in uh, in Texas, I believe it was recently. There was a sign that was warning uh, black folk from being caught in the area, either walking or working. You know, and uh, and it came out in the news, and so you're starting to see that kind of old school racism reemerge. And so you you have a lot of social problems again, which are not being addressed by people of religion. Right. Not uh, uh, by the by the Christians, not by the Muslims, even to a certain extent, even not by the nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you have this problem where there's a gap between the poor people and those who are struggling, and and uh, and the institution of religion in the general sense, right? You know, and so th- that that's a problem. And the and the nation of Islam in specific. You, you saw that there was a targeting of those who were disenfranchised. Right. Right. They weren't looked at as a liability, but they were looked at as an asset. Aside, we know all the problems with the nation. We're not painting it nice and this and that. Mm-hmm. But I think Sunni Muslims need to focus on how to transform what would otherwise be called the liability into, you know, in, into an asset and move away then from the from the materialistic, capitalistic way of looking at human beings mm-hmm. and then see how we can focus on really building the community. But first, people have to have buy-in, you know, and then once they have buy-in, then, you know, then they can move to the real work of prophethood, which is dealing with people and dealing with their conditions and elevating them and preserving their dignity and helping them to, uh, you know, to have a lifestyle which will lead them to a lot of other quartiles. And uh, I know I kind of talked in a general sense. But I don't know if that hit home. No, no, no. I, I think that that definitely is um, that's definitely relevant. And I think uh, that that's a, a great response to the to the question. And it leads me into well, two things. First is when it comes to that particular history, um, it's often looked at in a in a segregated manner. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is when we talk about the Nation of Islam, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, that particular um, experience, it is often seen as simply an African-American uh, experience or history uh, and not looked at in uh, not looked at through the lens of it being a part of the 
history of of Islam, whether you are indigenous or whether you you know you have uh, immigrated here, but it's not a history that is always uh, that's not always looked at or, or looked at with ownership, uh, and because of that, there's a I think there's there's a, a devaluation uh, of it, and it becomes more of a conversation about uh, uh, dogma and school of thought or just being you know, just just being something that's not understood, as opposed to looking at what is the ideal um, outcome of properly practiced religion, and that's going to always have a social uh, a social impact. And so instead of looking at the social concerns of that particular time and how that uh, how the organization uh, impacted the the social uh, conditions, how it impacted people. Uh, and, and gave uh, gave folks dignity and, and, and purpose and pushed against uh, this white supremacist narrative, that kind of gets pushed out the way and it becomes just a conversation on um, on, 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 on theology. Uh, and I think that we, we do ourselves a, a disservice uh, in general by not being able to see it for what, uh, see the beauty and the value uh, in, in what it represented, which is really, uh, it was stewardship, and it was taking responsibility for a community. So let, would, you, would you speak to this idea? Uh, and I think you, you mentioned this a little bit, uh, but bringing the prophet's mission and his impact on society uh, during this time uh, into conversation with the spiritual, the social, the economic, political, intellectual, et cetera, uh, concerns of today, which begin with the individual. How does knowledge uh, and access to it have an impact on that? Well, the issue of knowledge, the issue of knowledge is that even when it comes back to the, uh, you know, just taking a, a second, even when it comes back to the point that you were, ta- you were just talking about or talking to, mm-hmm. how we understand the nation of Islam and the history, you know, of black America in relation to Islam, and is that part of the general Islamic history or no? I think that, or the, even the impact of the nation of Islam, how we understand that when we look at Timbuktu overall, or we look at Al-Andalus, mm-hmm. we saw that in those communities, there were civilizations, and they dealt with knowledge on varying levels. It wasn't just the issue of the study of Revelation or the study of the Quran and the Sunnah, but they saw that the Quran and the Sunnah opened us up uh, to being stewards of the message and being vicegerents, and that meant that we had to take a particular role in history and in time and and so on and so forth. And so you began to see that there was an imperative among the ulama or the scholars mm. to put an emphasis on knowledge in the general sense. So so what we're lacking right now is the, the whole issue of, you know, of sociology, the whole issue of psychology, the whole issue of studying, like Ibn Khaldun, he studied the rise and fall of civilization. Right. You know, and so these are these are all Quranic topics. And so what happens is that we we don't have the proper frame to really study things. You know, and we, we and, and that and that creates a problem in our community. It sets us back. You know, it sets us back. I think that when you start talking about the role of knowledge is first of all, at a certain point we have to ask how is the knowledge, you know, beneficial to us? You know, and how is it uh, that the knowledge is going to help our condition, right? And after understanding the basics, the basics, the universal basics of Islam in belief and in practice, we have to start getting into other questions. The prophetic life gives us the framework to understand that Islam touches on every aspect of life. There's no way that you can deal with life issues as a human being. We find even that in uh, whether it was gender issues, those issues were dealt with, whether it was issues of ethnicity and tribe, you know, and, and, uh, and origin and so on and so forth. Even the issue, I don't like using the term race because race is, is an issue that's kind of conjured up. But for the sake of simplicity, the issue of race, we look at the last sermon of the Prophet وسلم, and we find that that was dealt with. Mm-hmm. We find the issue of economics is dealt with. The prophetic model is lost right now in education overall. Right. And, and so as a framework, when we have that prophetic model and in, in, in Chicago, you guys just had the Sierra conference. Mm-hmm. This is an imperative that some of the scholars say that we should keep that study 
of the prophetic life alive, right? It shouldn't just be an issue of a celebration or just of like his birthday and to honor him, you know, but there should be a constant study, you know, of the prophetic life to see how it is that that applies to our reality and to see how it is that it, uh, we can measure how people are calling to Islam. Mm-hmm. And see, that's one of the things that the nation of Islam may not have had some theological points correct, right? And they may have, you know, uh, exaggerated some points on race or may even have had some issues that were problematic or even some issues which were unbelief. But the overall framework of addressing family, community, individual, so on and so forth, that's very prophetic. Right. Right. That's very prophetic. And the consequence to losing that type of framework is exactly what we see in the statement that Imam Abdul Malik, who was actually from Masjid al-Taqwa, who was, you know, Masjid al-Taqwa in Brooklyn, was started by, uh, in part by Imam Suraj Wahaj, who came out of the Nation of Islam. That's right. And so one of the debates that he's been having for the last year is what is our role, especially on the East Coast, given the, given the gentrification and, the, and inflation and so on and so forth. And one of the things that he said recently was that in Brooklyn, there's about 70 to 100 Islamic institutions, including Masajid. Mm-hmm. And only two of them are owned by African-Americans, or at least run by African-Americans. Right. And so the consequence of losing the proper framework of how to operate, that prophetic framework that tells us you know, that we should be about building, right? Even, even Imam Warfdin, he had the concept of New Africa about building. You have a societal vision. You have a community vision. It's not just an issue of creed in the sense of I believe these tenets and I look this particular way and I just go on, you know, as an individual in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. So as a consequence of that, you find that the community is completely being marginalized. With the, like, for instance, in Brooklyn, if they're not able to maintain those two institutions, given the economics behind that, it may go down to zero. Mm. And that's the past. You know, I'm talking about, in this particular case, African-Americans having their own institutions. We have, in Cleveland, Ohio, we have a masjid that was built by Muhammad Ali, right. Masjid Bilal. And we're kind of hoping, it, it, it was with his assistance and others, it was the first masjid that was built from the ground up by African-Americans in Cleveland that even changed the zoning law, mm-hmm. because before it wasn't permitted to change the building towards the Qibla. And so, but now when you look at the generations, the generations are all older. So there's a possibility that that institution and another one that they have may not exist in the future unless you have a change. And so the thing is that knowledge in general is not enough, but we have to have an understanding of knowledge and how to apply and and how to build community. We have some messages. Nowadays, there are $3 million massages, million-dollar massages, half a million dollars. These massages are empty. Mm-hmm. So even though, like, for instance, uh, Imam Abdul Malik would say something like, there's 70 to 100 institutions, at the same time, many of those institutions may not be fully functional the way that we, as an indigenous community, envision a practice of Islam. Right. We envision a communal practice of Islam, or at least that's how our elders did, a community practice of Islam. A, a, a practice of Islam in which we're supporting each other in trade, in education, in which we're intermarrying with each other. That's the prophetic model. Our mm-hmm. elders had that correct, even if they didn't have details of theology correct. They right. may not have had all of the fit correct. They may not have had Lugat al Arabiya. You know, they may not have had the Arabic language. But as a general framework, they had the framework that was correct. It was just some of the details that were off. And maybe some points in Aqidah that needed to be reformed. And uh, because we never saw it that way, uh, we now we're, we're beginning to see a discontinuity and we're beginning to find ourselves in a situation where even knowledge is not helping us now. Mm. Right? The framework has to be there in place. And, and part of that framework is learning how to have leadership, you know, learning how to have leadership and learning what it means to be a good followership along with getting our share of the dunya. Right. right. We have to have an economic empowerment piece in a capitalist system or else Islam will not survive. And, because you know, that's, that's if there's interesting. There's no money to support Islam. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the Dawah can continue to move forward. And I think a lot of us, we haven't understood that piece. 
right? And that's why uh, that's why the knowledge by itself is not working. I you think know, it's important. The economy Chef. is driving most of our activities Chef. and most of uh, where we want to go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, really appreciate you bringing back this point of the um, uh, of, of getting our share of the dunya. Uh, and I think this uh, it's important for me for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which I'll share is that uh, there is a move to try to push people away, push Muslims away from uh, from any investment in this life. Uh, from uh, you know, it's not it's not necessarily asceticism because there are folks who are themselves uh, invested, who are you know mining uh, the resources. They are profiting there in industry, there in different businesses and such. But they are telling others that this is not this this life, this earth, this is this creation, this material life. Uh, you have no place in it. So I, I appreciate you bringing that point back up because you know without that you have no stability you know you don't have a leg to stand on if you can't produce anything if you're not uh, if you're not invested uh, uh in this you know in in this uh in, in this life you know in any because we all eat i mean until you get to a point where you don't have to eat you don't have to sleep then you need to make sure that you have some type of uh, engagement with this material world um can you talk a bit about because when you mentioned the the, the sierra and uh, it, it being something that should not just be relegated to simple celebrations, but something that is a part of uh, there's a lively discourse around it as a way to inform how we uh, see ourselves and we see uh, community life. Um, the, the Sierra Conference that we just had uh, here at Sound Vision this past weekend, um, one of the presenters, uh, Imam, uh, Imam, uh, Imam Wesley uh, LeBron, um, he was his presence there was was noted not just in uh, in his in his presentation, but it was noted that there were a number of Latino Muslims who were in attendance specifically because they knew that he was going to be there. Now, I want to get your thoughts on uh, on two things. So, uh, first, well, I guess it's, it's it's one thought, and that is the growth of the Latino population in the U.S. in general. Right, is lar the largest minority. Uh, right now. Uh, but this growth also runs parallel to the growth of the Latino Muslim community uh, in general. So as that growth continues, uh, inshallah, can you, what are your thoughts specifically about the state of connectivity between that exists between the African-American uh, Muslim community, the Latino Muslim community, uh, uh, specifically in our urban centers as these two communities, when we talk about black and brown, that's that those who are we are, you know, we're describing and who are dealing with the brunt of issues uh, when we talk about uh, police violence, uh, mass incarceration, or any of the ills. Um, we particularly talk about these two groups sharing a disproportionate um, uh, number or being disproportionately represented in, in dealing with those issues. Can you talk a bit about how you see that connectivity uh, existing? That connectivity has been there for a while in different communities, and there's a, 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 a fissure or a break or a gap in certain geographical regions. Yes. Like we're seeing some problems, aside from the Muslim community, mm -hmm. but in the general sense, in the general population outside of our community, you find that the blacks and the Latinos, like for instance, uh, in the West Coast, there there's a different type of relationship. And I think we need to be very cautious of what's going on there because there's violence between the two communities, and some of that stuff is a carryover from the street culture, the drug cartels, and the gang violence, and so on and so forth. And it, it creates a bad image as far as the relationships between the two communities are concerned. But when we look at the history of, like, for instance, Chicago, or we look at the history of New York City, especially in New York, when we start to... Let's just take uh, Arturo Chomberg as an example Mm -hmm. uh, Arturo Chamberg was, you know, from Puerto Rico, uh, and he he was one of the ones who who responded to the question that uh, you know blacks don't have any history. Mm -hmm. So the consequence of that was that he he made a move to uh, to refute that by collecting one of the most foundational libraries on black history, which eventually became the uh, the Chamberg Institute, mm -hmm. which is headed actually right now I think by someone from the Nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. 
um, and uh, and it became one of the the biggest resources for Black history and for you know Black studies in general or African studies in uh, and African studies in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the relationship in a place like New York City, I keep emphasizing that, has been huge. Uh, we have the group Alianza Islamica, who uh, who was uh, who was one of the older groups, the oldest Latino Muslim organization. They had community and everything, and you know they're also some of their members were came out of the Young Lords, which was basically the you know the 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 other side of the the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. And so you have a tight history that's there. You know, you have a tight history that's there uh, politically, civil, in the civil rights issues, culturally, ethnically, you know, and some communities more than others because not all Latinos are of one ilk. Right. You know, there's different, uh, there's different orientations and different histories, but there's a general history. But you find that, you know, um, I like to use the Arabic term, Namudic Farid, there's a very beneficial model. Mm-hmm. You know, in in uh, in the in the New York reality, and that you know the black and the Latino community struggle through a lot of issues yeah. with each other, with themselves, with the society, and I'm talking about Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about Muslims, and then they came to a point where they had to realize, you know, there has to be a sense of maturing and growing and building our own to be able to address these needs. And that was, and and honestly, from what I hear from one of our elders, Yahya Figueroa. Uh, you know, a lot of the black elders, they push that. They push the Latino community to come to its own and uh, to come to its own maturity, you know, and try to take a charge of its own affairs. Although, at the same time, looking at both communities as, you know, brothers and sisters as, as one community. But definitely there's some some different needs in, in each tribe, mm-hmm. sometimes that they don't overlap, and sometimes there's issues that do overlap. Right. And so that I think that moving forward, uh, you know, the black and the Latino community, Muslims in specific, need to get themselves together and, and kind of chart out how it is that we're going to, uh, you know, carve out our future. Right. You know, as the as the millennial millennium changes, you know, and we go into different, you know, in a different direction of life and how the the world is being restructured. We have to really find our place, you know, as as a. Uh, as Muslim, as, as a Muslim ummah, and as specific as, as, as people that come from a similar history and background, you know, and are tied together by, you know, by struggle and by blood right. and by experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that right now, that's what we're trying to do at the moment with the Latino Dawah. Mm. Alhamdulillah. Uh, all right, let me ask this. This I think this this would be our, my last question for you, uh, and that is... Uh, I mentioned in the introduction, I talked about your presence on uh, on Facebook and social media. And this is a really, uh, it, it's a crowded field. Uh, and the, the, the platform is such that maybe those who don't know uh, can't necessarily discern who they're listening to. Um, because, you know, if you got fingers, you know, then you can you can type. Uh, or you know, if you want to go live, you can just go, go live, and uh, and and it's not necessarily uh, certain that the individual that you're listening to is somebody that you should be listening to, or maybe you need to listen with some real caution. Uh, can you talk a bit about your own uh, process as how you go about using uh, social media to engage the public, uh, and you know, Muslims and non-Muslims, obviously. Uh, and what is your first priority in that engagement, and and how do you separate yourself from, you know, from the, from the fray? Because, like I said, you know, it's a it's a crowded field. Right. I think that you know it's complicated. It's, it's not easy at all. You're right about that. I think that one of the challenges in today's time with regard to knowledge is that sifting through the information, and that that really needs people to focus on you know a sound Islamic education. Right. in order to be able to do that. But as far as myself, I try to keep it, you know, I try to keep it humble. I try to keep it, if you notice, you know, it, it, even on my Facebook page, there's no long biography. There's no, <laughs> you know, I did this and did that. Yeah. It's just, and, you know, and, and if I could interrupt you, if, if, I could huh? inter- if I could interrupt you quickly, um, I gave, uh, Radio Sound Family, I gave you a, a seriously truncated uh, version 
of Sheikh Yusuf's um, bio. Uh, and I would, uh, and, and at times that can be a little challenging and, and it's more so for the purposes of time, but just to, just to kind of uh, go a little bit further with the point that you're making as far as humility is concerned, uh, sometimes humility is misunderstood. Uh, don't misunderstand it in his case. So I, I would, and, and when we close, we'll, we'll go to some contact info and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I apologize. Please continue. So, so you know, I just tried to keep it at a point where I can talk to people. So one of the things I tried to do is talk about cultural issues, which may not be popular to talk about in the masjid. Right. You know, other thing is, you know, try to uh, pass on uh, information about knowledge. And another thing is to try to spot people that are seem to be having mental health issues and try to reach out, and, you know, and be kind of like a support for them in that environment. And try to also, you know, you know, kind of bring some moderation to some issues that may be a little out there. Right. But definitely try to still keep, you know, relevant to what's going on socially and, you know, and politically and how it relates to our communities and, and try to yeah, work through some issues there and, and just try to show that social media can be a building platform. It could be a, a platform where we connect. It doesn't have to be something that digresses and devolves into, into you know, the, the common battling and, and arguing and debating and, and, you know, and cursing social media and saying, you know, I'm out of Facebook. You yeah. know, it doesn't have to be like that. It could actually be a tool for community building. And I think it's very important for people who play any leadership role to be active with the community and kind of get that side, even if it takes away from your your cachet and your status or whatever it is, yeah. you know, but it's important to be connected with the people and for, for there to be accessibility, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and, uh, and it's a certain crowd. Every crowd is not on there. The younger generation, they're using different media, right. you know, but um, every media has, has its place. And that's kind of the, the goal there is, is to, is to use it as a platform for education and, and communication, you know, and, and somewhat, uh, you know, encouragement. I won't say official counseling uh, because of the legality of that, but at least to be able to refer people to resources if they're having breakdowns. And there's people, we've seen them. You know, we've seen people that are collapsing. You know, we've seen people that are suicidal. We see a lot of things in the Muslim community. You know what I'm saying? Um, we're seeing that, and I think that's why we as a community need not take that lightly, and we need to be involved. The other thing is people are lonely. You know, and that's where, you know, social media is where they connect. So we should try to have authentic, uh, you know, uh, relationships on social media, you know, and so and, and that supports people. You know, it could be the single mom. It could be the single father. It could be the new convert. It could be the struggling Muslim. It could be the new Muslim. It could be, you know, whoever, right. you know, but and then it could be the academic Muslim, too. You know, there's some scholars that are on and periodically they throw out some ideas and so I think it builds it builds community, and that's kind of the goal, you know. But I also want us as an indigenous community to have a voice. Yes. Right, and that's kind of what, um, you know, what you know, I'm trying to do with that—that that we have a voice, and uh, and we give a voice to each other. It's just not like I have a voice and I silence you, and I'm the man, and you're not that type of concept. But but that we encourage and we uh, we build each other. Alhamdulillah, inshallah. Uh, can you tell, uh, share with the Radio Sam family how they can keep up with you, uh, social media or otherwise? Right now, I'm with Imam Wesley myself. We're, we're doing the Esperanza Community Hub. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we have a page on social media. Then I have my own page, Yusuf Reels, uh, and, and it's pretty accessible. Uh, and uh, the Esperanza Community Hub is like the project that we're working out of. You know, and we have we actually have a center in, in Passaic, New Jersey. I actually came back to the East Coast uh, for that purpose so that we can continue that project. And, um, and pretty much that's how you can contact. Uh, you can contact me. OK. Alhamdulillah. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Um, it has been uh, it has definitely been an enjoyable conversation and may Allah continue to. Uh, bless you okay, work. we thank you all for joining us uh, for another edition of Radio Islam. Uh, our time is up. We thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. With that, we are going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.
Thank you.